Lots of people were unhappy when, during the Trump administration, the Bureau of Land Management headquarters moved from Washington, D.C. to Grand Junction, Colorado. The idea was to put management near the lands they oversee. At least one support group, the Public Lands Foundation, is happy BLM is going to move back to D.C. For why, we turn to the foundation's president, Mary Jo Rugwell. Ms. Rugwell, good to have you on. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, Tom. And before we get started on the BLM, just tell us a little bit about the foundation. Well, the Public Lands Foundation is an organization made up primarily of uh, retired Bureau of Land Management employees who spent many, many years uh, working as public servants and managing public lands. Our main mission is advocacy, and we believe very strongly that public lands need to remain in public hands And the Bureau needs the resources in order to manage those lands efficiently and properly. And you have a map that you've published, similar to other ones published by the BLM, that show that the vast bulk of the land that is overseen by BLM is west of the Mississippi River. So I guess the basic question is, why should it not be in Grand Junction headquarters? So, Tom, the vast majority of people that work for the Bureau of Land Management are located in the west. In fact, I think the number is somewhere around 97% of the Bureau's employees live and work and are valued members of the communities in the West. What we're talking about is the headquarters office, which really needs to be in the Washington, D.C. area because of the fact that many of their functions require working directly with Congress, working with other federal agencies, figuring out budgets, They really need the ability to have timely conversations with a wide variety of people. The Grand Junction area is a lovely place, and the the current uh, director of the Bureau of Land Management has decided to leave a portion of the headquarters employees that work on national conservation lands there in Grand Junction, which is completely appropriate. In fact, I believe that there will actually be more employees in Grand Junction than there would have been before. But the the employees that work on budget and policy and need to uh, help Congress in terms of commenting on legislation and working with other land management agencies and other federal agencies need to have that proximity of being right there where they can have ready conversations. I mean, Grand Junction is two hours away from in terms of, you know, time zones and uh so it's, it's a lot more timely when you've got somebody in the same time zone if you have a question and need their help. And it is remote in and of itself, too. It's a city of only about 60,000 people. We actually had our annual meeting there a couple of weeks ago. And the reason we did was because our topic for that meeting was uh, electric bikes. And that part of Colorado is really... Uh, a mountain biking mecca, and electric bikes is really becoming a big issue there. That's the reason we met there. And again, the Public Lands Foundation thinks that Grand Junction's a lovely place, but the functions of a Washington office need to happen within the Beltway. And so I think the director now has the right idea about moving the functions that need to be in D.C. there and leaving the ones that can occur uh, readily in the West There in Grand Junction. Out there in the West. And Mm -hmm. to what extent do the activities of all those field people, the 97% of those that are out there, feed up into Washington in the formulation of policy? Well, you know, they absolutely do in terms of, you know, each 
each Bureau of Land Management state has what they call a state director. And that state director is responsible for what happens in, in the state that they uh, live and work in. And they are like the conduit between all the field people, the mostly 97% of our employees and the Washington office. So there's a lot of interchange, a lot of you know discussion. But at, at the end of the day, you know the policy is made uh, where all the agencies are, where Congress is, where budget gets figured out. And then it comes down through the state directors to those field people. And it's worked really well for 70, almost 75 years. So that's why our organization was pretty concerned when the last administration thought that this was a good idea. Because honestly, there wasn't, there really wasn't a lot of analysis done. It was, it was done pretty quickly. And I think without a lot of vision or thought. And so that was, you know, what what had us troubled about that. We're speaking with Mary Jo Rugwell. She's president of the Public Lands Foundation. And you mentioned most of the members are former BLM staff members. What was your own career federally? Well, I I worked for the Bureau for over 36 years, uh, basically started really kind of at the ground as as one of those people that, uh, that does the heavy lifting. There's a lot of great employees that work for the Bureau. And I was fortunate in the 30, those 36 years to be able to move up in my career and retired as a state director, the state director for Wyoming, um, just a few years, about three or four years ago. And what you say, though, I must comment, flies in the face of a lot of modern thinking about where people work. And more and more agencies are saying, well, we can hire people to work remotely now not telework from localities nearby the office, but remote work. And so is it possible for the director to be remote in, in this day and age of telecommunications, video conferencing, and so on? You know, I think there are certainly, the Bureau has, because of the pandemic, the Bureau has really, I think, embraced remote work for many of the rank and file employees and even, you know, even some higher level employees. But at the end of the day, there are certain, there really are certain jobs that you have to have that interpersonal face-to-face interaction. And the director is certainly one, many of the assistant directors and the deputy, we have a deputy director for policy and a deputy director for operations. Again, the reason that they need to be in DC is kind of also the reason they need to be face-to-face. There are just many times that those meetings have to happen very quickly very, you know, responses need to be very timely. And while remote work is is a a nice idea and can work in absolutely certain situations, um, it's not the most effective in all situations. All right. And I just wanted to ask a couple more questions about your own career. And as you said a moment ago, you retired as the state director for Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Yeah, big state, not too many people, kind of my kind of state. <laughs> yes, it's, it's uh, and, you know, like many states in the West where the, the BLM managed uh, public lands are, uh, almost half of Wyoming is public land, which I think sometimes people don't understand I think more and more now the public is is understanding how important those public lands are because uh, during the pandemic, I think so many people, the only really option to, was to get outside. And I, I think that people not only in the West, but people all over the country realized 
that public lands are a treasure and something that we really have to keep in public hands because if the, everyone owns them, then everyone gets to use them. And if they're privatized, that whole you know, that whole wonderful gift goes away. Sure. And did you learn to ride a horse in the course of your career? <laughs> um, I did not learn to ride a horse. I did uh, I did take wilderness training during the, the latter part of my career, and I did have to ride a horse as a part of that training because uh, we, we rode into the wilderness. I will say it had been a while since I'd been on a horse, so it was a little bit uh, – it was a bit challenging, but I managed, so it was okay. And did you retire in Wyoming, or did you move back east? Yes. I'm presuming yeah. you're no, a back I, eastern. I retired in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, beautiful state. I've got to get through it there. It is. It's a fabulous days. place. Absolutely. Mary Jo Rugwell is president of the Public Lands Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. I appreciate it. And we'll post this interview along with a link to the Foundation position paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive-in-residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what does that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there. Um, I didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of of my existence. So it did 
you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on, the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I re- realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. Is I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school, and I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town, where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES-level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply. Whether it's Baker's Simple Truth Turkey or Mac and Cheese with Murray's English Cheddar or pie made with fresh Cosmic Crisp apples, there are many dishes we look forward to sharing during the holidays. And Baker's has all the fresh ingredients you need to turn today's holidays into tomorrow's memories. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Get more ways to save at the Buy 5 or More Save $1 each sale. Just buy five or more participating items and save a dollar each with card. Baker's, fresh for everyone.